Are we recording? Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Like everybody goes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the muscles tighten. Okay, I'm gonna take a drink and then. Yeah. I'm too bashful. That's okay. I'll be the mom. Welcome along to this very special episode of Macabre London with Morbid History. Woohoo! Woohoo! So, <laughs> so I am the host of Macabre London. My name is Nikki Drews. And I'm one of the co-hosts of Morbid History Podcast. I'm Katie Hinchliffe. And I'm Charlie, the other half, and I'm not dead. So there we are. We're back together. Yeah. Well, we were just saying like all three of us needed to get on our game. Mm-hmm. It's 2018. It's a new year-ish. It's February. (laughs) (laughs) So it's been a bit of a gap. Um, I I know that I lied to my unfortunate listeners because I said I would be back in January and I wasn't. Um, It was a bit too nice having a bit of a break. Mm. Um, So yeah, so now back in the saddle, Mm -hmm. ready to go again. Yeah, Um, I think I was suffering from like seasonal annual depression. Me too. So (laughs) we're not good together. We didn't make it to the Christmas episode. I didn't make it to the Christmas episode. I had to be in Canada for the Mm -hmm. Christmas episode. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It was great, by the way. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. So yeah, so world travel and uh, also just being lazy. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Because being (laughs) in the main problem. That's what what, uh, winter's all about. Yeah. So that's what we're doing right now. Yeah, that is what we're doing. Right <laughs> now. So if you hear any uh, crunching or uh, rattling of plates, then that's mm-hmm. us. I'm afraid eating some amazing dip that yeah. Katie has made. Thank you. Um, which is made with layers, layers of stuff. <laughs> it's it's a five layer nacho dip. <laughs> <laughs> with cheese so, on top. With cheese on top. That's one of the layers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one of the layers is cheese, <laughs> which is always cheese. good. I feel like everything should have an extra layer of cheese. Yes, on top of it. I think so too. Good. And so today we're going to do a bit of a kind of a, a, a mashup, as we were saying beforehand, <laughs> of our episodes and how we usually do things. So usually, as you know, with Macabre London, or you may not know with Macabre London, and um, <laughs> I usually read a story uh, with some music, sound effects, etc. Um, that I have gleefully stolen from the internet. <laughs> um, but they're always very atmospheric and yeah. lovely. And yes, you've got a good voice, uh, so. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> so it's usually what I do. Um, but I thought seeing as Valentine's is coming up is a good idea to think about some of the gory, horrible stuff that uh, we all like um, yes. and have a good chance to kind of sit down and speak about our favourite <laughs> gory Valentine's yeah stories <laughs> yes so how do we want to do this do you want to read through the entire thing and then um like do you, without us making any comments or because we usually we normally like chip in yeah, yeah let's just do it as chipping in okay because I, I think that we're bonding as friends i mean I <laughs> <laughs> so that's how i think that'd I be really bond. awkward then if i was like hey hang on, I, don't, I don't know you i bond by butting into people's <laughs> everything and have to share it so this is my house so i should say as well that we were in katie's amazing Mm. house and i'm not going to reveal where she lives but it is amazing and fantastic and um yeah it's like sitting around a uh like ancient kind of fireplace i feel like i can feel the history covered in my jeans <laughs> not g-e-m-e-s jeans as in my laundry's hanging up which it always is always. anytime yes. anyone comes over my pants or by the radiator i feel like 
it isn't it isn't laundry day like you've just decorated your house like this yes yeah it's an installation you can ask mark about it <laughs> you would agree so for our order of play mm. we've pre kind of emptied what people are gonna do yeah no fighting today no fighting today <laughs> you don't have to fight with anyone well, you don't have to do rock paper scissors no, no. but that's fine um i'm a bit nervous to eat a, a chip but i'm gonna do it should i go first then mm-hmm. are we ready should i just go yeah i'm cool. ready I have a chip my <laughs> You might just have some ambient noise of us stopping. That's fine. <laughs> I have no problem with you guys enjoying your time. Okay. I'm I enjoying this it. tale. Okay, so I'm going to talk about Mary Eleanor Wheeler. Have oh. you guys heard about her? No, I don't think so. Great. That's always how I like <laughs> to start mine. In my tiny notebook. <laughs> okay, so... The Wheeler family were unique in a way. Both father and daughter were hanged ten years apart for two separate murders. Thomas Wheeler had murdered a local farmer, Edward Anstey, on 29th of November, 1880. In his cell, he had written to the farmer's widow, apologising and asking for her forgiveness and prayers, and that his sins shouldn't be visited on his wife or young daughter. Mm. So... Mary Eleanor Wheeler was born in 1866. Not much is known of her childhood and we only catch up with her when she's arrested at the age of 24. We do know that in her late teens she was in a relationship with a carpenter named John Charles Piercy. They never married but Mary took his name and used it after they'd separated. She was arrested, charged and tried under the name Piercy. She fell for a man. She fell for a name. Wow, she didn't do that. She fell for a man named Frank Samuel Hogg. He was a furniture remover, and had impressed Mary with his printed business cards. Oh, I know. She was easily impressed. I mean, at the time, who would have a printed business card? But there we go. (laughs) Omg. Frank had a key to her house, and she would put a light in her window when she was free. Frank was also married with a daughter, and they were both called Phoebe. So there we mm. go, he's a married man. So Phoebe married Frank in November 1888, and she was three months pregnant, giving birth to Phoebe in the summer of 1889. Mm. The affair with Mary had been happening both before and during their marriage. On October 24th, 1890, Mary sent a boy on an errand with a note for Phoebe asking her to tea that afternoon. Mary's neighbour, Charlotte Priddington, heard the sound of breaking glass at around 4pm that afternoon, coming from Mary's house. Uh, She called over the fence to see if everything was okay, um, but received no reply. At 7pm, a woman's body was found lying on the pavement on Crossfield Road by a man coming home from work. The woman's head was covered with a cardigan... You know how I feel about cardigans. As you wear one. Mm. (laughs) After your story about the cardigan... Yeah. I said I'd never say the word cardigan, but it's in the story, so apologies. Um, I have more Welsh facts for you. Thank you, Greg. <laughs> so the woman's head was covered with a cardigan, which, when removed, revealed the blood-stained face of Phoebe Hogg, who had a gash across her throat. The body was removed and taken to the morgue, where it was found that she had a fractured skull and the gash on her throat so deep she had nearly been decapitated. She had bruising to her head and arms, um, which were defence injuries. It was found that the body had been... The body had been murdered elsewhere and left where it had been found. There was no identity at this time. A 
mile from where Phoebe was found, a policeman found a heavily bloodstained pram. Mm. The next morning, the body of a small child was found. She had died from suffocation and was otherwise unmarked. Two possibilities arrive when talking about little Phoebe's murder. Either she was strangled after the murder of her mother, or when moving Mrs. Hogg's body on the pram, the weight of the body suffocated her while she was in the pram. Oh. I know, I told you it was grim. Mm, sad. So, like, do you reckon that... How would the baby be in the pram without somebody realising? I think that was the point. Oh, she okay. was trying to take the baby with her. And then uh, put the body on top. Right. And it has unintentionally, uh, okay. intentionally suffocated the baby. Ooh, that's grim. Um, Frank and his sister Clara reported Phoebe missing after reading about the body in the local paper. Frank sent Clara over to Mary's house to see if Mary knew where Phoebe was. She said she hadn't, but agreed to go to the morgue with Clara to see if the body was Phoebe's. I mean, that's grim, isn't it? That, yeah going to see if the body in the morgue is your, is your boyfriend's wife boyfriend's wife? yeah yeah. So, um, on seeing the body Mary tried to convince Clara that it wasn't her even though Clara had identified the clothing she became hysterical when the extent of Phoebe's injuries were shown they were then asked to look at the pram Clara identified it as belonging to Phoebe a neighbour said that they had seen Mary pushing the said pram with a large oh, wow. object on it to on the evening of the murder. Frank was told about the positive ID and also told he was a, sp- a suspect. Uh-oh. He was searched, and when a key to Mary's home was found, he quickly confessed to the affair. <clears throat> Mary was next to be questioned. Her behaviour at the morgue had already made her look suspicious. The home was thoroughly searched and substantial blood stains and splatters in the kitchen were found. Also found were bloodstained carving knives and a fire poker. There was also two broken windows and a rug with blood stains, which smelt as if someone had tried to clean it. Mary's behaviour became stranger while the police searched her home. She sat singing at her piano, whistled, and then tried to explain why there were blood stains by stating she had been killing mice, killing mice. <laughs> of course. Um, How much blood comes out of a mouse, though? Well, that's why she said mice twice. <laughs> <laughs> Mary was arrested and charged for both murders. Uh, When a personal search took place, Mary had bloodstains on her clothes, scratches on her hands, and was wearing Phoebe's wedding rings. Oh my god. (laughs) No. Just borrowed these. Um, She was kept in custody and while in court awaiting her committal hearing, she told Sarah Sawhill, the woman looking after her, that Mrs Hogg had come to tea and Mrs Hogg made a remark that had offended Mary and an argument ensued. Mary realised she was incriminating herself and then stopped talking. Mary entered a plea of not guilty. The prosecution outlined its case against her, which was the jealousy she felt of Frank being with and marrying Phoebe and that she had had enough. She was found guilty after 52 minutes and at lunchtime on the third day. Mary was asked if she had anything to say while the court should not give her judgment of death in accordance with the law, to which she replied... I say I'm innocent of this charge. She was sentenced to hang. So that's all she said. I didn't really say anything else. <laughs> um, her solicitor made a considerable effort to say that she wasn't herself at the time of the killing and that she had suffered epileptic fits since birth. 
Medical inquiry was undertaken by three doctors, Bennett, Gilbert and Savage. I mean, that's great. It's like trio of names. Right? Yeah. That's pretty good. Um, they conducted an hour-long interview and didn't find Mary insane. Her papers were marked, the law must take its course. Frank, Ooh, I know. That's ominous. Mm. I know, right? Yeah. Frank was given permission to visit her. He didn't attend, which upset Mary, and it made her inconsolable. Her solicitor came to see her on the final afternoon. She asked him to put a, pers- a personnel ad in the Madrid newspapers, which was to read... M-E-C-P, last wish of M-E-W, have not betrayed. She refused to elaborate on its meaning and refused to confess. Mary was hanged by James Berry two days before Christmas in 1890 at London's Newgate Prison. The sheriff asked Mary if she had any final words to which she replied, My sentence is a just one and much of the evidence against me is false. Mary was hanged without an audience as she was a woman. This didn't stop 300 people gathering to hear the bell tolling and waiting for the black flag to be risen. Mary didn't evoke public sympathy and a cheer was heard as the flag was hoisted. Madame Two Swords made a wax model of her for their Chamber of Horrors. Oh. And they bought the pram from Frank with other personal effects. Oh, really? Oh. I always wonder, like, what happens to the bits from Madame Two Swords, like the original great bits like do they just get put in like archive like storage they must if anybody works at madame tussauds <laughs> and wants to let us know i've yeah. got a book about the uh i was gonna say chamber of secrets <laughs> wow i've got that one maybe that's what they call wow <laughs> chamber of horrors um and i haven't started reading it yet oh, interesting but it's all about how mm. they acquired yeah. everything for the chamber of horrors but it's I I was so annoyed when I found out that it closed and they put like some three D no. crap down there and I was just like oh I just want grim that was my favourite bit guys like, you get more revenue open it back up <laughs> no <laughs> well it was when they put Jimmy Savile in there and oh then that ended it all fell. really yeah it's a bad move yeah <laughs> definitely just, bad just move. melt him down yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, let's never never speak about him again. I just want to know, like, what they do. Not that it's necessarily at Madame Tussauds, but it. I want to know what they did with like the wax anatomical models that they mm. used to, um, like, tour around the country. Mm. I believe that they toured them in like Canada and the states as well. But I want to know where they are. Like, you see the odd one at like the Hunterian and stuff. There's but... a wax museum in Florence that I oh. went to, and it's very extensive. Mm-hmm. I obviously skipped through the baby bit. Mm back out yeah. the other side to look at other bits but there's so much there cool I don't know if that's... maybe that's where i'll have to go yeah it's very good you should now book a trip now now do it right now. right listen guys <laughs> cancel the podcast <laughs> i'm gonna book a trip katie's to going to florence <laughs> yes sweet well that was great. that was mine so um thank you so she was a bitch just saying <laughs> and a baby killer happy valentine's day guys <laughs> so why is it just because uh, the crime of passion the element do you think that's like why that happened mm-hmm. yeah for sure I think or... she was completely jealous and I think she'd got to the point where like I think almost with the baby that she didn't mean to kill it that she mm-hmm. meant to kill the wife mm-hmm. and yeah. then pretend that that was her baby with Frank mm. but Frank's oh, that a dick really creepy yeah can like, you imagine mm. growing up and then finding out that your mother has killed your real oh. mother 
And your dad was all right with it. Yeah. Ooh. Creepy stuff. Mm. Imagine if he never found out that it was her, her that did it, though. Mm. Mm. That'd be worse. That'd be, like, fatal attraction, but... but worse. <laughs> but worse. <laughs> Pretty yeah. grim. Do I like it, more, though. Do you want some I've still got some. I'm trying to be a good my. hostess. <laughs> Being an excellent hostess. Thank you, dear. But, yeah, I'm uh, well aware that I don't want to crunch too much. It's okay. I think that adds gonna, to the ambiance. I'm going to silently crunch. So is it me next? Yeah, it's you next. Quick, let me grab some chips. <laughs> you grab some chips. London has many myths, legends and stories attached to it. Londoners throughout the ages have taken great pride in retelling tales, learning stories from other natives and also perhaps adding in a few embellishments over the years. London is synonymous with its folklore, crossing of wires and speculation sometimes adopting the untrue story, all for the sake of spinning a good yarn. This story is just one of those. Today, I'm going to be telling the tale of Bleeding Heart Yard. I'm mm. so into this. <laughs> it's your own private reading. Yes, it is. It's making me so excited. Okay. So, in Farringdon, in northeast London, lies an unassuming dead-end road. Nestled within it lies cobbles and a collection of buildings which to anyone passing through would seem to be pretty unassuming. At first glance, the cul-de-sac seems quaint, quiet, and fairly similar to many other areas of the city. However, this yard has one of London's strangest and most horrific tales attached to it. High society in the 17th century was about three things. Money, connections to the aristocracy, and the ability to throw an incredibly good party. <laughs> <laughs> I really want to go to one of those parties. Me How too! Amazing would that be? Let's do it. <laughs> Maybe we should throw one. Mm. Yes. Lady Elizabeth Hatton was no exception to this rule. Mm. Elizabeth was known in her time for being unusual and unique in the way that she carried herself. She was a lady of opinion, informed, outspoken, and could drink men under the table. Mm. Her character was adored by those who knew her, but appeared abhorrent and obnoxious to those who didn't, and the outside world. The Kim Kardashian it girl of her day, <laughs> she married a few times over and simply couldn't care less what others thought about her actions. In fact, she went as far as to be noticeably stoic and outspoken so as to garner the appreciation of others, turning it to her advantage for social gain. So basically, she was mm -hmm. like pretty good feminist mm -hmm. for her time. Yeah. So yeah, when I first started century. researching about her, I was like, oh, she sounds excellent. <laughs> You're into it. Yep. Um, just going to burp, get that out of the way. <laughs> Keep that in. So Lady Hatton knew that by climbing the social ladder, she could improve her life and also enable her to live comfortably. Elizabeth I took to the throne at the age of 25 in 1558. She had made great steps during her reign in raising the profile of women in men's eyes and in turn society as a whole. Elizabeth was clever in her ruling. She knew when to step forward and say her piece, but she also knew when to use her skills to, man to manipulate a situation. One of her mottos was video et tasio. I see, but say nothing. <laughs> Which I'm going to start saying, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> that'd be a great tattoo. Yeah. Uh, this allowed her to turn many a situation her way. Mm -hmm. In terms of conflict, Elizabeth I was not often keen on instigating battles. Instead, she used to let her military plan conflicts, but would usually ignore the threats from France or Spain until the threat would subside mm. or only a small battle would occur with the only exception being the Spanish Armada in 1588, which was a bloody big battle. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Once that the, I can understand. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Once the Battle of the Armada was won, this led to Elizabeth earning the title as the formidable queen. Mm. And in turn, this helped to make things easier for women in society as a whole, as they now had the opportunity to speak up. Elizabeth Hatton was a fan of Queen Elizabeth I and worked her hardest to make it into the royal circle. Mm. It's important to mention that at the time, royalty were the A-list celebrities of the day and Elizabeth knew this could be her way into fame and fortune. Elizabeth was already fairly high on the social scale, being the daughter of Thomas Cecil, the first Earl of Exeter, but she knew that marrying well would help her. She was known for her beauty and men would try insistently to court her, but she would turn them away. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> that was like my problem <laughs> so many sex pests <laughs> thank god it's not like that now <laughs> eventually she settled on a man who was sufficient who was of sufficient wealth and of decent enough connections it's important to remember that in the earlier centuries people didn't marry for love but instead as more of an investment in their future mm. Particularly with men having a habit of dying early before their wives, women picked their options carefully so they wouldn't end up being left widowed and poor. Elizabeth married Sir William Newport at the age of 15 in 1593. So she was already like known in circles circles and she was 15. When she was 15. I'm 28 and no one knows who I am. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Just took my invisibility cloak off. Uh, where did I get to? Elizabeth Sorry. Mar- no, it's fine. <laughs> Elizabeth married Sir William Newport at the age of 15 in 1593 and took his alias name of Hatton. Hatton's mother was the sister of Elizabeth I's Lord Chancellor, keep up here, mm-hmm. uh, which got her even closer to that royal connection she so desperately wanted. After William died in 1597, Hatton was now left with some wealth and the Hatton estate as she was the only surviving member of the family left at just 19. Just as any 19-year-old would do, left with a huge open house and a large amount of inheritance money, she started to have parties. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, getting a reminder coming from my phone. These parties would last for days and would see all sorts of society attending them. This is where the Bleeding Heart Yard legend comes from. It's said that one night during one of these three-day-long parties at Mm. Hatton House, Lady Elizabeth was seen dancing with the Spanish ambassador, Senor Gundamar. Whoa! <laughs> I know, sounds sexy, right? <laughs> yes. Um, the man who was said to dance with her long into the night before disappearing out into the yard for some fresh air, mm-hmm. in the air quotes there, the two weren't seen for the rest of the night, and in the early hours of the morning, as the sun was rising, people were heard screaming as they discovered Lady Elizabeth's lifeless body on the floor. That's oh my a hard, God. hard sentence to say. Her heart was cut out and lay beating and lay beating next to the dismembered body. Oh my god. Those that were attending the party on the night said they saw the Spanish ambassador's eyes glowing a dark red whilst he danced with Elizabeth and they believed he was the devil that had seduced her. Oh my god. Mm. As much as I would love to believe this gory story was true, the history books do say differently. Elizabeth didn't die anywhere near that date. She actually went on to marry again after a series of suitors tried to win her hand in marriage. One dramatist dedicated plays to her, calling her the right, worshipful, bountiful and virtuous lady, the Lady Elizabeth Hatton. Hello. (laughs) And she still turned him down. (laughs) (laughs) Sir Francis Bacon, not the painter, Mm -hmm. the statesman, author and philosopher, (laughs) uh, also tried but failed to woo Elizabeth. She was said to have found him repulsive and Ah, incessantly ah. pestersome. I can tell. Yeah. Pestism is a word that I really want to start using. Yes. <laughs> I feel like that's a good one. Mm, pestism. Eventually, Elizabeth married Sir Edward Coke. 
Coke was 25 years senior to Elizabeth, and at first the two seemed to be a good pairing, but it wasn't long, wasn't before long that things started to turn sour. Uh-oh. Both were far more interested in social gain and money than each other, and eventually the marriage broke down. But before then, the two made their way in with the potential new king and queen after Queen Elizabeth's death in 1603. King James VI and Queen Anne of Denmark were the monarchs of Scotland. Elizabeth and Edward travelled to see them in Scotland and soon became good friends with them. Anne liked Elizabeth so much that she asked her to join join her as her lady-in-waiting. Anne was a feisty character and appreciated that Elizabeth was the same, and the two enjoyed each other's company immensely. It wasn't long before James and Anne became the new king and queen of England, and, and Elizabeth knew that she'd finally made it to where she wanted to be, at the head of the table. When Elizabeth and Edward's marriage broke down just a year after they married, the disagreements about money and the Hatton estate, which was rightfully Elizabeth's, but Coke wanted, became so vicious that the king and queen had to step in and mediate. Can you oh imagine my God. being in that situation? Oh, <laughs> where the king and queen <laughs> have to be like, sort your lives out. I know. Oh my God. The two were estranged, but spent many years bickering over their daughters, Frances and Elizabeth. Name your daughter after yeah. yourself. Yeah. There's something a bit wrong there, isn't there? Um, but everybody was called Elizabeth back then. So. That's true. <laughs> yeah. Francis was meant to marry the Viscount of Purbeck, but Elizabeth disapproved of the pairing. He was mainly believed to be insane. Um, <laughs> mainly. She, mainly. Uh, she, but he was also... Uh, the, a sex pest. <laughs> he was the son of somebody who the king really liked. So yeah. Um, so therefore... Had to... Married yeah. this weirdo. Um, Gross. <laughs> uh, she sent Francis to live in Cornwall, mm-hmm. where she was meant to be betrothed to the much better suited 18th Earl of Oxford. Edward got word of this and stole his daughter away from the home in Cornwall to return her to the Viscount, and the two were married. Ugh. Unsurprisingly, the marriage was a sham, and Francis managed to elope to live with her true love, Robert Howard, whom, he, whom she had an affair with shortly after her marriage to the Viscount and was pregnant soon after. Ooh. At Edward's funeral, Lady Elizabeth exclaimed, We will never see the likes of him again, thanks be to God. <laughs> so the legend of Bleeding Heart Yard may be a load of made-up nonsense, but I think that maybe Elizabeth Hatton would have been better off in the legend than in real life, having had to suffer the amount of real-life heartache that she went through. I thank you. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yay! That's like an episode of EastEnders, wasn't it? It I was, know, yeah. I, I had 17th such century EastEnders. a hard time keeping up. There was a, yeah, there was a lot, a lot going on there. Yeah. yeah, A lot of plot twists. But yeah, so basically, it's all a load of made-up nonsense. <laughs> yeah. You mean I... some of English history is a load of <laughs> yeah. made-up nonsense? Hey, Canada. What? <laughs> it's oh, Canada, actually. Sorry. <laughs> hey. Oh, Canada. <laughs> How are we doing for time? Is it oh, not a Canada? <laughs> Join Charlie Carver in following Matthew Everett on <laughs> Twitter. Thank you, phone. I mean, I didn't even know I was, but uh, great. <laughs> great. Cool. Okay. I've got Lady Gaga just retweeted like Lady Gaga's photo. <laughs> I don't even use Twitter when I get these things. Congratulations, Lady Gaga. Well done, Lady Gaga. Lady <laughs> Gaga. <laughs> okay. Here we go. Any gap, and I'm this is, like, this makes me quick. so nervous. Take some dip. Yeah, take some dip. I feel like I've eaten like half of this. No, I'm so sorry. Oh it's like God. no, I haven't. It's like I haven't had lunch. No I had cheese and biscuits. Silly and cheese and biscuits from Christmas. I made this pasta the other day, and it was honestly like life-changingly good. We've got this thing in Canada called Hamburger Helper, and it's like big in the states too. <laughs> but we call mince hamburger. 
just as a disclaimer to get you started. Oh, so all you have to do is add mints to this mix, mm-hmm. and it makes like a pasta thing. And it's so delicious. And there's one called cheeseburger macaroni, Ooh. but I made it like a fancy homemade one. And uh, like, thank God for Pinterest because this recipe was on it. And I probably ate like three quarters of it before then serving it for dinner. Amazing. And I was so sick that night. Mm-hmm. I was just having really weird dreams and I was lying in bed just like, what have I done to myself? At the same time, you just like, I regret not, nothing. I'm not even sorry. <laughs> sorry, not sorry. I'm not even sorry I've made myself sick. I know. I ate a whole bag of kettle chips, a twirl, and my ginger beer yesterday. And when you were texting me, I'd fallen asleep reading my Jack the Ripper book under a heated blanket. And I woke up and I was just like, I don't feel so good. (laughs) (laughs) And like, Tom had like three of his crisps and I made him get a different bag because I was like, I just want to eat a whole big bag of crisps, like a big one. (laughs) Does he understand that sometimes you just want to eat the entire thing though? Or does he say something to you? No, he, no, he, he gets (laughs) that I'm It's because he's well trained. (laughs) And then then I was like, today he was eating the rest of his and he was like, do you want one? I went, you do realise that I'll end up just taking that back off of you. Like, don't even offer me one. Yeah. And then I cracked and had one. And then I spent the whole time like looking at the back of his head while he's playing PlayStation. And drooling. (laughs) 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 Oh my God. (sighs) Okay. So are you guys ready? I'm so nervous for Mm -hmm. this. Okay. (laughs) I'm going to talk about one of the most sensationalized murder trials in recent British history, which is not like me because I usually Mm -hmm. anything pre 19th century. Mm -hmm. I'm like, or sorry, anything post 19th century, even. Whoa. How much gin is this gin and tonic? Where am I right now? Anything after like 1899, mm-hmm. maybe 1908 at the latest. I'm like, I'm like 1902. That's not me. Okay. Off. All right. Okay. Just to let you know. I'm safely in the Edwardian mm. period. But yeah. So anyway, this, well, you'll be surprised by my choice, but it's something I wanted to do for a while. Anyway, it was sensationalized because of the way in which the victim was killed in a crime of passion, but also because of the manner in which it was dealt, which resulted in the last female execution in Britain. I'm going to talk about Ruth Ellis. Ruth became... Oh, sorry. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mess up right, right away. <laughs> That's okay. I couldn't even get my first sentence out. Like, that going flat from there. Um, Ruth came from a rough background. Born Ruth Nielsen in Hill in North Wales. I've driven through it. In 1926, Ruth came into an abusive household and endured this abuse throughout her life. The family moved to Basingstoke and at age 14, Ruth dropped out of school to become a waitress. When she was 15, her family moved to London in 1941. Ruth adopted the fashionable cropped, curled, bleach blonde hair, dark red lipstick, and nail polish. Or nail varnish, as you guys either or. <laughs> or. Um, and as a petite woman with a great figure, it is unsurprising that she garnered a lot of attention, both positive and negative. Three years after moving to London, she found herself pregnant. The father was a French Canadian soldier in the war, and gave birth to her first child, Andy. The father paid for care for Andy for a year and then disappeared. Andy went to go live with Ruth's mother. Now in London, Ruth began life modeling and eventually made her way into the nightclub scene as a hostess at the court club on Duke Street, where the owner, Morris Conley, which sounds so much like one of our security people at work, (laughs) but not the same person, um, would blackmail his female employees into sleeping with him. And also began... sounds like a lovely person. I know. And also began sleeping with clients of the club. 
Sure enough. Oh, she's, she also began sleeping with clients at the club. Sure enough, Ruth became pregnant again and had an illegal abortion a few months later to return to work, which would have been, I can't imagine it, like just returning back to work into the same mm. kind of scene. Anyway. I read something earlier that um, I'm reading a book about Titanic slash suffragettes in the same book. Mm. Um, backyard abortions sometimes were done oh. with a knitting needle. Yeah. Yeah. Hot I mean, bath, bottle of vodka, knitting needle. Oh. Yeah. Or a hanger sometimes. Yeah. I think knitting needle offends me more because I use them a lot. Would you just carry on knitting with it? Do you know what I mean? Wash it off. <laughs> Wash fine. it off. Yeah. Wipe it off. Wait for what not? Yeah. <laughs> Make do amend. No. <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't laugh. Carry on. <laughs> this is bad. Keep calm and carry it's on. It's laughing because of the horror. I'm not, laughing yeah. because I'm trying it's, to hide my yeah. tears. <laughs> okay. Anyway. It was at the court club that Ruth met George Ellis, whom she ended up marrying. He was a dentist with two children of his own, but was also very possessive of her and, what a surprise, very violent and abusive, as well as being an alcoholic. Convinced that she was cheating on him, things started going very sour, and when Ruth became pregnant again, George left her because he was not convinced he was the father. Ruth gave birth to her daughter, Georgina, and returned to live with her parents. She also returned to prostitution in order to pay her bills. Ruth eventually found um, work at the Little Club, this time working as the manager. With celebrity clientele, she was showered in expensive gifts. It is here that she meets David Blakely, one of the men in her fatal menage a trois. He was a race car driver who loved drinking, which is a great combo. Mm -hmm. Despite the fact that he was engaged to another woman, within a few weeks of their budding romance, David moved into Ruth's flat right above the nightclub. She also becomes pregnant again and aborts the baby. Sometime soon after this, Ruth becomes romantically attached to another man and her Desmond cousin, the final player in our deadly menage a trois. An ex-RAF pilot, he is now a successful accountant and also a wholesaler of tobacco. Ruth was, for various reasons, fired from her post as the manager of the little club and naturally moved in with Desmond and became his mistress. Her relationship with Blakely, uh, sorry, her relationship with David Blakely continued, however, and it was, you guessed it, another abusive one at that. So abusive that, this is horrible, in January 1955, the then again pregnant Ruth and David were in an argument and things got so heated that he actually punched her in the stomach, causing her to miscarry. Oof. Which is, it, that, that disgusts me. Yeah, that's so horrible. So this is where the story takes a turk, and you, oh my god, I can't speak. Turk, turk, Nope. Here we go. This is where the story I can't speak. No. <laughs> okay, third time's charm. <laughs> this is where the story starts to take an even darker turn. There were a lot of weird lot sounds in that. <laughs> the same year, on the 10th of April, Easter Sunday, Ruth took a cab to the Hampstead home of the Findlater couple, friends of David Blakely, where she thought he might be. As the taxi pulled up, David's car pulled out. Ruth got out of the cab to follow him to the Magdala Club. He came out of the club around 9.30 p.m. with his friend, Clive Gunnell, and both ignored Ruth when she smiled and waved to them, saying, Hello, David. Trying to get his attention, she yelled, David, and pulled out of her handbag a 38 millimeter model revolver and fired at him. 
Her first shot missed, and he started to run. She shot him again, this time hitting him, and he fell to the pavement. She then fired three more shots into his back at close range while standing over him. And apparently one of the shots was so um, close to him that there was actually like powder burns in his back. She fired one last shot, which hit the pavement and actually injured someone else going into the Magdala Club, which I said would have been me. <laughs> but she was like hit in the in like the base of her thumb. Would which you have is just Would you have been like, I just be like fuck? listen? Do not. <laughs> trying to go out. Oh my god! I made myself look so nice. That'd be me. <laughs> Can you just kill him quietly? I don't care what you're doing. You shot me. <laughs> anyway. Uh, okay. Ruth was said to be in a, sh- in a state of shock and confusion and was dazed as this was going on. She's reported as saying, will you call the police, Clive, to his friend that he came out of the club with. She was then apprehended by an off-duty policeman to whom she said, I'm guilty. I'm a little confused. She was then taken to Hampstead Police Station, where she gave a full confession and was charged with murder. No evidence was ever found of drugs, alcohol, or any me- mental illness. She was believed by the authorities at the time to be in the right mind, or to be in her right mind as this happened. On the 20th of June, 1955, so this is a few months later, Ruth appeared at the Old Bailey and, despite the suggested modest apparel, came dressed with freshly um, peroxide blonde hair and a slim cut suit. She was also very open about her relationships and remained calm in the court. Whether or not this deterred the jury and judge is still to be seen. She was only asked one question about the murder itself by the prosecution, which was, when you fired the revolver at close range into the body of David Blakely, what did you intend to do? Her answer was a simple, it's obvious, it's obvious, when I shot him, I intended to kill him. The judge, Mr. Justice Havers, that was his real name, um, said that her defense was so weak, it was non-existent. Her years of abuse both by family and her romantic relationships, were never mentioned in court. The other thing that was never mentioned was how she got the gun in the first place, but, as Judge Havers later stated, it was never brought up, so he never questioned it. The jury took only 20 minutes to decide that the verdict was to be a guilty one. She was sentenced to death by hanging, to which she replied a simple and soft thanks. She was taken to Holloway to await her execution. She did not want a reprieve and said that she wouldn't take part in any sort of deal. However, the day before her execution, she was visited by two of her ex-lawyers who had helped her with her divorce from George Ellis and not the current case, after they were tipped off from her current lawyer to ask where she got the gun from. Uh, through Through much coaxing, she reluctantly revealed that she had been given the gun by none other than Desmond Cusson, the person that she was the mistress for who had also taught her how to fire it. He also drove her to the scene of the crime, not a cab. Searches began for Desmond Cusson to try to bring him into the equation. The home secretary, Gwillem Lloyd George, that's a very... Gwillem. I'm hoping I'm saying that correct. It is a very Welsh name. Was also very severe in his approach to the ruling and refused to take on this new information. He stated, if she isn't hanged tomorrow, she never will be which is quite horrible. In recent years, actor Nigel Havers, grandson <gasps> of Justice Havers, said that his grandfather asked for the retrie- uh, for retrieval, or sorry, retrieval, 
asked for reprieval. My phone auto-corrected. <laughs> uh, asked for reprieval, but Lloyd George said no, and the family still has the letter, which I think is really cool. Mm. Despite their best, uh, despite their best efforts, this new fishy evidence did not hold any weight in the final verdict, and Ruth's execution remained scheduled for the next day. And here's my first quote. <clears throat> well, I've had I've had a few quotes, but still. Um, da, 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 da. So she was visited by the Bishop of Stepney, mm-hmm. um, and it was the day before her death. And she said to him, it is quite clear to me that I was not the person who shot him. When I saw myself with a revolver, I knew it was another person. At 9 a.m. on the 13th of July, Ruth was brought to the execution room by nine. Uh, uh, by nine. My God, my phone is autocorrecting. <laughs> uh, let me say this again. At 9 a.m. on the 13th of July, Ruth was brought to the execution room by none other than your man. My man. Albert. Albert Pierre Point. My, my guy. He your appears. guy. Yes. yes. And was hung and dead in 12 seconds. 12 se- That's untrue. Well, that's what it says. That's a goddamn lie. Well, anyway, they left her body. <laughs> <laughs> they left her body hanging for an hour before an autopsy was conducted. Pierre Point is quoted as saying, I've seen some brave men die, but nobody braver than her. After her execution, there was a public outcry. This controversial case was seen as a crime passionnel or crime of passion, which, argued many campaigners, was not understood by the British. I have another quick quote here. So um, the Daily Mirror columnist um, Cassandra wrote a column and she said, the one thing that brings statue, uh, stature and dignity to mankind and raises us above the beasts will have been denied her. Pity and hope of ultimate redemption. 50,000 people signed a petition for clemency, which Lloyd George, Home Secretary, refused to grant. And also, dee, 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 dee. so there was an American crime writer, Raymond Chandler, who was staying in London at the time, and he wrote um, a big letter to the Evening Standard, but this is part of it. The thing haunts and, so far as I may say it, disgusts me as something of scene. I am not referring to the trial, of course, but to the medieval savagery of the law. I have been tormented for a week at the idea that a highly civilized people should put a rope round the neck of Ruth Ellis and drop her through a trap and break her neck. This was a crime of passion under considerable provocation. No other country in the world would hang this woman. And so I just want to end with um, one one more thing, and it's a letter that she wrote to um, David Blakely's family when she was in prison. So this is part of it. The two people I blame for David's death and my own are the fin- Findlaters. No doubt um, you will not understand this, but perhaps before I hang, you will know what I mean. Please excuse my writing, but the pen is shocking. <laughs> I implore you to try to forgive David for living with me but we were very much in love with one another. Unfortunately, David was not satisfied with one woman in his life. I have forgiven David. I only wish I could have found it in my heart to, for- to have forgiven when he was alive. Once again, I, I say I am very sorry to have caused you this misery and heartache. I shall die loving your son, and you should feel con- content that his death has been repaid. Goodbye, Ruth Ellis. So that's the story of her. And obviously it's still sensationalized mm-hmm. and she's portrayed in tons of stories and mm-hmm. TV and movies. I saw um, a play about her a few years ago and it was just, it's so good. And I think it's just, 
it's such um, a poignant story because, like, it's a woman, obviously, in a crime of passion, but she's mm-hmm. not being murdered. She is doing the murder. Mm-hmm. And um, I think a lot of um, people even, I, I, th- I guess, arguing for her in this case now would say, you know, like, she wasn't in her right mind. And, mm-hmm. and um, I wonder, you know, if this had happened now if maybe she wouldn't have been executed but i don't think she would have because no. they would have all of those circumstances that they didn't want to listen to would have been would have been brought up yeah yeah and so it probably would have been moved to manslaughter yeah but yeah i wonder how many crimes of passion have been done by women versus men yeah that's why i wanted to do this one because mm. i mean as i said it was a story i wanted to do anyway but i liked the fact that it was it was her and it's mm-hmm. it's such an important case too because she was the last woman yeah. executed in the uk but did you did either one of you go to the crime museum uncovered exhibition at the british or at the museum of london is that the one with all the ropes yeah and it was really overcrowded one of the ropes was hers was it yeah, yeah. Oh, and one of them was amelia dyers i've got the um my woman amelia. from that at home so good oh that's what i'll be doing this evening you're gonna have... <laughs> see I who else is the right I, <laughs> I can't remember i have a feeling that you know how there was um there were bits about different murders or different yeah. cases um i have a feeling that that her revolver was one of them i'm gonna look in that look thing in the when pamphlet I get home. and can mm-hmm. and yeah. I'll update Let me know. Confirm. <laughs> yeah, Confirm. I will. So, yeah. Well, this that was, was good. That was good. That was so, good. we're going to do some uh, a morbid history. Um, fun facts. Fun facts. Because fun that's that's facts. our little our little thing to kind of like cheer us up, but usually our fun facts are and kind of morbid anyway. Gruesome, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mine definitely is. Sometimes I try to make them like not, but this time I couldn't help it. Who wants to go first? I've got mine here. You do you. I feel like I've been very quiet and munching for a long time. That's fine. <laughs> okay, so. Tell me. Fun fact from me. Um, in Victorian times, people thought that you could catch a murderer by studying the victim's eyes. Oh. In 1857, Wilhelm Kuhn obsessively studies, studied Rhodopsin? The pigment found in photoreceptors. Hmm. He discovered that it bleaches in light and that the eye needs some time after continuous exposure to replace it. He then conducted an experiment with an albino rabbit. Whoa. Yep. He strapped the rabbit down so it could only look in one direction. Out of a barred window. Sorry, I didn't know what that said. Um, the... <laughs> I was like, out of a what? A barned window. Oh. Out of a barred window. He covered the rabbit's head with a cloth for several minutes. He whipped off the cloth, let the rabbit stare at the window for a few minutes, and then decapitated it. Sliced its eye in half. Oh, no. And got to work mixing the chemicals. <laughs> this is like out of Wild Wild West, where it's like the last thing that they see. Mm-hmm. And then they... Or like water shipped down. Yeah. Oh. Like a, like a I like that I went right from. <laughs> um, so he was mixing the chemicals. He developed the image. I will post it this picture somewhere. But mm. for now, I'm just going to show you guys what that image was. I'm just going to turn my brightness up because I like to have mine nearly off. Um, so this is the image oh. that was developed. Kuhn called his process optography, and of course it became a sensation. If the last thing we saw was literally fixed on the retina, 
then no living witness would need to give evidence in a murder trial. A murder victim would surely have stared at their killer so the eyes of the murder victim should contain images of their attackers. This is Wild Wild West. <laughs> there we go. And so that's what I've been doing. So that yeah, is crazy. That image, basically, because you can't see it because I just showed you guys, um, is of the barred window. Yeah. So kind of freaky. But of course, when people die, they don't do that test because it's not real. Although you'd like to think it's real. They did it in... Uh, Wild Wild West. Um, <laughs> Watership Down. In... Uh, Jack the Ripper's last victim. Yeah, um, I can't remember what her name was. That's really bad. Can Marie Kelly. Was it Marie? Mary Kelly? Kelly was the last one. Yeah, and they uh, did that to to <gasps> her, but they didn't find anything. Obviously, because yeah. it's not real. I mean, could you imagine if that they hadn't thought of it until then, and they did it to her, and then as terrifying. At the moment, my Jack the Ripper book because I have like too many. Um, I'm reading the one that Patricia Cornwell has kind of edited and re-released mm-hmm. and um she's gunning for water sticker like gunning really? for him yeah there's so much like tenuous evidence between like mm-hmm. she's like so he wasn't where he said he was because he had written a letter here so he was definitely in london and he definitely committed those murders and this is how we did it but wasn't she's it found like, out that she put a load of money into... Uh, didn't she buy, like... Because yeah. he was a painter, wasn't yeah. he? Mm. So she so bought, bought loads of his paintings and yeah. then, like, cut them up. So stuff. she didn't cut them up. And this is what was in her, like, edited version. Yeah. When one of the paintings arrived, it had been punched. Someone had accidentally oh put right. their fist through it. Oh so the my image God. that was released to the media was obviously, like, super controversial. Mm-hmm. And apparently oh. she wrote a letter to Sickert's nephew or something saying look I didn't cut it up I would never do that it's very important like art you know da 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 but even if I had I mean I would if it was to <laughs> prove that he yeah. was Jack the Ripper yeah. because surely his victims are more important than the stupid painting that I've just bought and I was yeah. just like <gasps> so I'm not sure about her at the moment I feel like right. it's very like I am right, and here are the facts. Yeah, there's a lot yeah. of ripperologists that don't give yeah, her any. No. Of... But, like, some of it, I'm just like, well, it could be true. And then I read a different Jack the Ripper thing, and I'm like, well, that could be true. I'm like... standing by Kosminski. Yeah. Really? That's who I think it okay. is. Yeah. Okay. In my mind, anyway. I definitely think Walter Sickert had something to do with it. For sure. I think he knew, I think he probably knew more than he let on. Yeah. Because he was obviously, like, running in that area yeah. and then he was in, obviously in Camden the last during three that. books that I've read has mentioned Walter Sicker yeah in some way or another so like I definitely think he was yeah knew more than more than he was letting on yeah but anyway Ooh. more to come on that one but yeah that's my fun fact that's great thanks and you'll have to post that photo I will. Yes. <laughs> I say I will. Will I? I don't know. We Maybe. have to remember. <laughs> I know. We say that we're going to post stuff and then we forget. And then we're like, oh, sorry. <laughs> Here's a picture of a rabbit's eye. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you want to go next? Yeah. Do you want me to go next? Um, my phone is not loading, but I can kind of vaguely do it yes, from memory. Do it. So my Valentine's themed fun <gasps> fact is something that's a little bit gory um, or something that's incredibly lovely depending on how you look at it. Lovely, obviously. So uh, Mary Shelley, as of the Frankenstein uh, fame, used to keep her deceased husband's heart wrapped in a cloth 
on her person at all times. Aww. And then when she died, they found it in her writing desk. Oh. And uh, eventually it was buried um, in the like family tomb. Oh, but yeah, her. I was like, oh, isn't that a lovely gothically That's horrible, so lovely. Yeah, lovely thing. Oh, I love that. Fact. I've always said to Tom, if he dies before me, I'm going to get him like taxidermied and made into a lamp so that when I turn it on in the evenings, like his face like, is just like... A kind of <laughs> style. Yeah, yeah. A yeah. gain, a gain. I never that's horrible and I was like but I see you all the time like it'll be fine he was he like literally he literally lights up your life like li- he, he will literally <laughs> yes if anything happens to Tom between like now and when there be aired, like two I little weird holes coming out of his nose like two, two little would, would there not be like two little lights like a like a reading light coming out of his nostrils <laughs> no it's gonna be like <laughs> like your light over there yeah. But Tom's head will be like at the bottom of that. So it looks like he's wearing oh, a hat. Oh, at the bo- I was thinking he was oh, left. He's standing up. No, but he's standing up. Ah. Uh, so he'll be like a floor lamp. Oh, I get it. I now. see. I thought you meant like stretched out face. That's like, what I thought too. A like in like a puffer Who. fish. Oh, the thing. <laughs> yes. no. The no. last the last human. Yeah, the last human. <laughs> um, <laughs> sorry, Tom. Sounds <laughs> <laughs> <Sauce> Tom. <laughs> Happy Valentine's Day. <laughs> Um, so my, my fun fact, I can already sense Mark's eyes rolling as he listens to this. He's probably going to skip it to the end. I tell him this fact all the time and it becomes a thing because <laughs> every time I'm like, did you know? And he finishes this fact because I've told him so many times, but did you know <laughs> that <laughs> now I can't even say I'm going to giggle. Did you know that the character of Nancy in Oliver Twist was based on a real person? So um, it was based on the murder of Eliza Grimwood, and it was a sensationalized murder in the 19th century, and it shook Charles Dickens to the core, and he was so disgusted because she was found brutally murdered in her apartments um, that he decided to immortalize her as Nancy in Oliver Twist, and she is one of the most loved um, Charles Dickens characters. Charles Dickens. So take that, Mark. (laughs) (laughs) He's going to dump me. Anyway, happy Valentine's Day, me. Oh, yeah. You've mentioned all my favorite things Charles Dickens, you've had about Jack the Ripper, Mary Shelley, Mary Sherry. <laughs> Sherry. Sherry. What? I was about to say, I haven't had anything to drink. Mine was just disguised in a chocolate drink like a child. <laughs> so Charlie had how much Baileys in that cup? I think it was a good inch. It was, so. yeah. yeah. I'd say probably more like two. Mm. It was very nice. It was a good free ball. Listen, I don't skimp. Oh, this is great. This is great. This also makes me sad that we're that we're done. I f- Should it's we... good though. We've got back on the bandwagon. Yes, mm. and it was it was lovely to do this with you, Nikki. Yeah. We're gonna have to Yay. do another one because this is really fun. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. We should do, do all do major more. holidays. Yeah, all <laughs> major holidays from now on. Yes, <laughs> oh, I love this. Yeah. So should fun. we should we plug our um, yeah, social media? Yeah. So if you want to do your social media? Sure. So, um, <laughs> Charlie and I can't look at each other because I put on my, like, social media voice. So, if you So, if you like what you hear, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I was trying to think what our other we one was. We don't have Tumblr. 
We don't like have Tumblr. Tumblr. I know. Like I keep Tumblr. saying Tumblr. <laughs> yeah, I remember. That. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> no, I mean, I have Tumblr, but I have my I space. Been on Tumblr <laughs> when I was like fourteen. <laughs> I have it, and I every time, like, if I can't sleep in the middle of the night, I'm just like, I'm just gonna find some funny. I'm just gonna tumble. <laughs> I'm just gonna. I'm just gonna tumble along. <laughs> okay, so you can find us on Facebook at Morbid History Podcast, and you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Morb Hist Podcast. You can also email us at morbidhistorypodcast at gmail.com. Charlie? Oh, yeah. I was just thinking, <laughs> oh, my God, what is it that I even say? Yeah. So if you like what you're hearing, rate, review, subscribe. And we only like five-star reviews. <laughs> five-star reviews only. Thank you. Uh, so I will probably just insert my uh, social media at the end because I have my own little... Uh, yes, you do. That, that I every time because otherwise I forget what I'm doing but you can follow us on Twitter on Facebook follow us on the Acast app if you want us to uh, appear in your downloads automatically subscribe as well please share this if you like it um, and we will love you forever uh, and I think that's it if you want to email me you can email me at macabrelondon at hotmail.com because I am still trapped in the 90s and using hotmail and <laughs> um, yeah I think that's it Yes. Happy Valentine's Day, everybody. Happy Valentine's Day, and don't commit a crime of passion. I don't believe in Valentine's Day, so you can all just get a life. Peace. <laughs> <laughs> right. Bye. 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 Bye.